From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And you know what we're going to do today? We're going to start from where you guys keep writing to me because it really is something interesting. And then we're going to take it even further. This is going to be one of our Where Do Words Come From shows. Let's start with something that's called sound symbolism. This is a subfield of linguistics that has a name. It's kind of intuitive. It goes a little further than you might think, but not as far as you might prefer. And part of my job here, as always, is to take us a little further from where we might think things stop. For example, we have these labels for various things, for nouns and verbs and adverbs and everything else. And you kind of wonder, where did the words come from? Who started this? And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that our words today started out as other words and that there's this constant morphing. But that only leads to the question, where did the first words come from? And even nowadays, it's the only place words come from, people deliberately making things up or words coming together. Well, no. There is something that I think many of us feel might be the source of all words in some way. And boy, would it be fun if it was. And that's something called sound symbolism. What do I mean by that? Let's take sn, S-N. You are going to sneak somewhere. Now, sneak happens to mean what it means. There you go. But then you think about a word like snake. And then you think of a word like snoop. Snake, snoop, sneak. Even snicker, which is to laugh in private, a kind of a sneaky kind of laughter. It seems like sn, in English, this is hardly universal, but sn has something to do with slithering and sneaking and doing something behind people's backs. It's symbolic. If you speak English, you subconsciously internalize a sense that sn means to do something in private, of all things. Who knows how that started? Nobody will probably ever know. But after a while, you have what can informally be called a word family. So the sn words. And there are a lot of families like that. So, for example, sw. Let's say that you sway. Well, I don't know if there's anything particularly sway-y about swaying, but let's say you sway. But then you can also swerve. Okay. Then you can also swagger, right? Swaggering and swaying and swerving and maybe even swooping. You have a certain kind of rocking back and forth, a certain kind of swagger. That's actually the way an earthquake feels, believe it or not. I used to experience earthquakes a lot when I lived in California. And really, the earth kind of sways. It swerves. It swaggers. And so if sn is about sneaking, then sw is about swaying. There's a word family. Think about spr. You can spray, you can spread, you can sprinkle. If I just say spr alone, it's not only because of how spr sounds by itself, but you just know that it's probably going to be a word having to do with sprinkling something around. My favorite is gl. Something glows, glimmers, glistens, glints. There's the glamour. There's the glitter. And so GL is that kind of, ooh, I can't do it. And you know why I can't do it? Because folks, I have for, I think the first time in my life, laryngitis, and I'm just over it enough to lay this down, but I can't do little high sounds. Probably some of you will be thankful for that. But pretend that I just made the Tinkerbell sound. That is GL. So glowing, glimmering, glistening, glinting, glamoring, and glittering. All of those are that kind of shimmery, stars in the sky, Disney opening credits in the old days kind of feeling. 
what this means is that sound symbolism has a certain amount to do with where we get words. It's funny, words even change according to these sorts of things. And so, for example, in Latin, to lick was lingere. If that had anything to do with the fact that the l kind of connotes the licking in a physical sense, well, isn't it interesting that the word for tongue in Latin is lingua, but originally it was dingua. It becomes lingua over time, as if the word wants to become part of this licking family, so to speak. So, sound symbolism can definitely create words, and there's a very recent example that's one of my favorites. And that is the marvelous yeet. And I've been told about this by my younger cousins. And yeet apparently has many meanings, but one of them is that it's a sonic imitation of, say, throwing something into a trash can or through a basketball hoop or something like that. So something goes yeet, and now this yeet has become a verb, a verb to the point that apparently you can past tense it, and it's an irregular past tense. And so if I yeet today, then yesterday I yot, and I'm told that you can say that I have yot something. Now, I wonder if anybody actually says these things or whether we talk about saying those things. But yeet is certainly real. I've been catching it on the subway and in the streets that I spend so much time hanging around, puffing on my cigarettes. And now, if we're talking about something like sna or swa or spr, well, we can't forget sp, just sp. And that brings us to, you know, this is a forced transition. That brings us to um, a group that I've never played anything from on the show, The Spinners. And so we have to have something like um, love me or leave because love and leave sound like they're part of a word family in this and that they're opposites. That's certainly not the case. This is just one of their best songs. So let's just kick off our song selections for this episode with a little bit of this, which reminds me of being problem-free pre-puberty in the backseat of a gas-guzzling car sometime during Watergate. Get yourself together, baby. But, you know, folks, let's face it. Sound symbolism is too much fun to be the whole story. Where does house come from? And if you're thinking, well, it's a house and so it's large. Well, what about the fact that in Spanish it's casa? Does that sound large? No, casa sounds like something cold that you would slice into when you wanted a bite to eat. Or, you know, French, it's maison. That sounds like something French. It doesn't sound large in particular. Or, you know, where does above come from. And if you think that a boob sounds like it's rising up, frankly, to me, if I didn't know it was about being on something, I'd think that above referred to one of those kind of salamanders that lives underwater and its arms are too small and its head is too big. Oh, look, I stumbled over an above. If we're hungry, we can you know chop it up and eat it. Where did already come from? And how does it symbolize sonically what already means? Clearly, there must be more. And there actually is something. And it's about words coming together. And this isn't the word sex that I talked about in an early one of my episodes. So this isn't about things like a blackbird becomes a blackbird or something like that. There are other ways that words can come together where you start 
with it being clear that this new word comes from two other ones. But next thing you know, you have a brand new word, and you would never even know that there once were two words. And it happens on a continuum. And so much of how language works, both in the present and in how it changes, is about continua. For example, let's say that you're happy. I'd be happier today if I could actually talk. But let's go back to me, say, you know, three days ago, and I have the power of speech, and I'm happy. Well, if I make that into a noun, then I add this little thing, ness. I can put that there. And so happy plus ness means happiness. And so there's a noun form of happy. Perfectly, as we call it, transparent. You get a new word by combining your happy and your ness, which used to be a word of itself, and you have happiness. And yes, I know that's not interesting at all. Well, let's say that you have the word over and you have the word look. Overlook. Now, theoretically, overlook refers to something looking over. So you have a room in some hotel and it overlooks the terrace or something like that. But notice that that sounds more like Hemingway or England, not not you. I mean, no offense if you're listening to this in England, but something overlooking the terrace, a little bit literary. Really, overlook more spontaneously means that you neglect, that you skip, that you forget something. So those things are metaphorically looking over it, above it, past it. But overlook doesn't mean exactly what you would predict over and look put together to mean. So it's not transparent. Overlook, as in you overlooked me when you were giving promotions. That's really, it's a new word, and it comes from two things that don't really mean only what they end up meaning with that word overlook. So words come from this sort of thing too. You can't know what these combinations are going to drift into. A nice example of this, because it's time for a clip, is from Waiting for Guffman, the wonderful parody of musicals, where at one point you've got Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard and Christopher Guest and Parker Posey up there on stage as these amateurs in this little town of Blaine doing a musical number about when their town became briefly famous for producing high-quality stools, as in the kind of stools that you sit on. And the song is called Stool Boom. Good example. Put stool and boom together. What in God's name would that mean? Does it mean that the stool is going to explode? You have to have watched this movie to immediately think of a boom in the construction of stools when somebody says stool boom. And for that reason, everybody should have seen this movie. This is Stool Boom. So we're on a continuum here. Now, suppose we go from happiness, real easy, overlook, a little bit of distortion, then understand. Okay, we know what understand means, but 
what are you standing under? And are you standing at all? And did you ever think about that? Maybe not, and you didn't need to. But under and stand came together, and through a process that actually nobody actually understands, so to speak, understand came to mean to comprehend. Another example, make and out. You make something, I guess you construct it. Out means, well, not in, usually. So you're going to make out. Now notice immediately you are 16 and you're necking with somebody in some basement. What is the making and what's out about it? Well, who knows, but we know that make and out came together And what they end up meaning is smooching in 1978. Well, how in the world did that happen? For me, it was 1978. Although, actually, it wasn't. No, that was before. Anyway, so make out. Or, well, I'm going through the fog and I'm making out that there's a castle. There's a castle up before me. I'm making out. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Although, once again, make, why not to perceive or to espy or to see out? What are you making And then again, out, okay, maybe it's coming out of the fog, but you wouldn't necessarily think of that. And then if somebody says, well, he really made out, and so he did really well, out of what? All the meanings of make out are extremely idiomatic. To make up. I'm going to make up your face. And so you put some crap on there. Well, you made it, okay. You made it up. How is it upward? Now, up doesn't always mean up. Often it means to finish it off. So that makes some sense. But then even there, well, we had a fight, but then we made up. Okay, so the up indicates the completion. But what did you make? Why did, why did you make it? These are things where it's not only just a little bit distorted, it's become opaque. This is what happens. And so you have a really brand new word. Understand might as well be blucketymph. It's just stuff. Intellectually, we know it's under and stand, but it's not standing. It's not under. It is a chunk of crap. And that's true of make up, make out, turn out, pick up, and various meanings that are just extremely idiomatic. So words come partly from words coming together and becoming less and less what they originally were. It's this wonderful melting process. And so after a while, it gets to the point that you can't even tell that there was a second word at all. So let's say that you are warm. Well, the noun is warmth. Well, what's a th? Nothing except that if you think about it, you have things like long and then length. So you can tell that there's some kind of th. And, you know, nobody knows exactly what the th was. We can be quite sure that there was something that had th in it or something like th in it that meant roughly having the quality of there was some word used possibly on the steppes of Ukraine, possibly in that little neck of Denmark, probably somewhere in between th. But that started combining with adjectives. And next thing you knew, you had what we now have as brand new words, warmth and Often, you would never think that you had two parts, even if I tell you about warmth. And so, sloth. Did you know that that is sloth? Or that youth is from youngth? Or wealth. Now and then you'll hear somebody say, well, we've got to think about the common wheel. And you think of it as this pretentious word that isn't a word, which is exactly what it is. But wealth and healing and health. Or mirth is merry, like that. So here, it's not only opaque, 
it's a fossil. This is just, you know, dinosaur. This is ammonite. This is just trilobite. This is a fossil. You have no idea after a while that you're dealing with two things. When you talk about mirth, you don't think of it as a meeting of two things. You think of it as one, frankly, slightly marginal word. Same thing with sloth, which is much less marginal, and certainly with youth. Youth is one thing. If anything, you think of it as resembling the word young almost by accident. And then this really goes even further when you get to the point where the original word isn't even there at all, even in a little bit of stuff that somebody like me can call attention to. And that gets into things such as, think about this, you sit yourself on a chair, but then you set a flower pot on the windowsill. A lot of you do not observe that. I certainly don't, but it's certainly there to be talked about. You sit your butt down, you set the flower pot on the windowsill. Okay, you fall, you know, whoops, bam. But if you're going to make something fall, like you chop a tree down, you fell the tree. So sit, set, fall, fell. Make it happen, and it becomes eh. This goes further. You drink something. You drink your, your watermelon Jolly Rancher soda. Yes, sometimes you do. Then drench. So that means that you take a bucket of watermelon Jolly Rancher soda and dump it over somebody's head and they say, ah, why did you drench me, sir? And so that means that you made the person drink. So sit, set, fall, fell, drink, drench. And so just that change of the vowel, it's not about some ending, it's not some bit of stuff. There was a bit of stuff at the end a long time ago but it disappeared. But before it disappeared, it made the vowel before it changed. So it's like the Cheshire cat. It leaves the Cheshire cat's smile. If this weren't a podcast, but a vid, whatever that would be called, then of course we'd run a clip from Alice in Wonderland, which everybody should enjoy baked, as some people say. But I can't do it, and I'm not going to play the smile happening because it wouldn't be very interesting. But sit, set, fall, fell, and then drink, drench. And herein lies the business of lying on the ground and laying something down. I do not observe that because I think it's silly. I think it's old and fossilized. And I have gotten some very, very gentle chiding from some of you listeners for not observing that here on the show. I hear about it on Twitter sometimes. You know, McWhorter, did you not observe? And I tell you, I (laughs) do not observe it. But I do understand it. You lie down, but then you lay your pencil down into a groove or something like that. You know, it's 1941 and Cole Porter is writing a song for a show called Let's Face It for Eve Arden, more famous later as Connie Brooks in Our Miss Brooks. And it's a song about these rather modern women who aren't satisfied with their men. And to tell you the truth, I can't help wondering whether Cole Porter actually thought that this was going to be sung on a Broadway stage in 1941. But it's a wonderful cut song from Let's Face It called Make a Date with a Great Psychoanalyst. Very hard to find recordings of. Thank you, Alex Borilsky, for getting me this file because, of course, we have the song in our heads, but we are very strange. Here is a great song which I am pretending is justified by me talking about lie and lay, you will hear why very quickly. If your love affairs are all involved, if you've other problems that must be solved, if you're worried about the way you look, if your son just eloped with your favorite cook, make a date with a great psychoanalyst and lie down. 
If at winning bridge you've lost your touch If you dream about Bert Law too much If of late you're constantly in your cups If your peaks become the mother of poodle pups Ring the bell of a swell psychoanalyst and lie down If your nights are dreary and your days long Cause your boyfriend just gave you the gate Find a fancy doctor with a chaise lounge And wait, simply wait If your lawyer's been sent to Alcatraz If you just found out that your husband has Every day with a gay cutie piatrist I suggest that it's best you should try a tryst With some active, attractive psychiatrist And lie down With some willing, I'm feeling psychiatrist And lie down So you get new words because words come together in that way. There are some other cute ways that you get new words that nobody tells you about. There are these state secrets that they only let the president know, you know, pressing the button, et cetera. Well, I'm going to give you the secrets. Another way that you get new words is that you have a word that starts out as slangy, as an informal version of a word that everybody knows and loves. And pretty soon it splits off and becomes a word of its own. The classic example of this is dis from disrespect. Dis is now a word. I would say it's about 30 years old, but dis is different from disrespect. Started as a joke, now it's a word. There are other examples of this that are older and you think about it less, but new words come from a similar process. So let's say that you curse. There's an R in there. Let's say that you are speaking a kind of dialect that tends to leave R's out at the end of syllables, maybe in the middle of words. So instead of saying curse, you say cuss. Well, if you think about it, curse and cuss mean the same thing, except they don't quite. There's a curse, and then there's a cuss. Once you're cussing, it's a little humbler. You imagine a different setting. And notice, you can't say, I hereby put a cuss on you. That's impossible. You have to put a curse on somebody. I curse you to have to sit through more than one episode of of Mannix. But you can't say, I cuss you to sit through more than one episode of Mannix. And so cuss is vernacular. It's vulgar. It's you know shaking your head and letting it all out. Curse has a wider range of meanings and is more formal. Similar. I have a passel of kittens under my porch. A passel of kittens. What's a passel? A passel started as a parcel. You can imagine somebody taking seven kittens and for some reason putting them in a bag. And I don't mean to flush them down the toilet, but you just might want to put them in a bag. You can't carry them. And so a passel is an informal parcel. Drop out the R, just like you can drop the R out of curse, and you get a passel. So passel starts as like ding, 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 ah, passel. But then it's a whole word of its own. This is really the way these things happen. So you can burst something, and then you can bust something. Now, they're the same, but they're not. His appendix busted? No, probably not. You know, somebody had a burst of glory. Van Gogh had a burst of glory. Did he have a bust of glory? No, he didn't. Bust is different. One would not burst a move. Your 
best friend Harry has a brother Larry In five days from now he's gonna marry He's hoping you can make it there if you can Cause in the ceremony you'll be the best man You say neato, check your libido And roll to the church in your new tuxedo The bride walks down just to start the wedding And there's one more girl you won't be getting So you start thinking, then you start clicking A bride made looks and thinks that you're winking She thinks you're kinda cute so she wings back And now you're feeling really firm cause the girl is stacked Reception's jumping, bass is pumping Look at the girl and your heart starts stumping Says she wanna dance to a different group Now you don't want to do G bust the move I'm pretty sure that I have neither bursted nor busted a move in my lifetime, for example, as much as I like that song. Here is an example of this that you would never think of. You know how the British term for the butacle is arse? So you talk about somebody's arse, and here in America that just seems kind of British. What would happen if you drop the R? Then you get the ass. That's where we get the ass. And so, ass starts out as that word for donkey, but then the buttock word is arse. But then you might say ass happened a long time ago. It had probably happened by the time of Midsummer Night's Dream when bottom, ha 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 ha, has some jokes along those lines. And so, arse becomes ass. And ass and arse really are different things, as we know from all those fanciful meanings of ass that I've talked about on this show that would never work with arse. You know, I'm going to fire your arse. (laughs) That's a gray arse score. No, the word is ass now, and it's quite different. So lose your R because you're speaking slangily, and after a while, you might get a brand new word. Now, a word can sometimes feel to a linguist who happens to hearken to things like this as a kind of excrescence, or like when you bite your cheek and you have a bump in there for like 36 hours. There's some words that should not be the way they are and bother us, but it's because somebody decided that we had to get all throwback about it, and now we're stuck with it. So, for example, June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February. Yeah. Don't you hate saying the name of that month? It's so awkward. No child gets it right at first. February. January. February. Ew. And you know what? That is a word that no good English speaker liked. And rather quickly, it became January, February, March, April. Isn't that nice? January, February, March, April. February. Sounds like a disease. But we had February, Middle English, everything's fine, call it Feverer. But somebody decided, oh, no, no, we've got to go back to the way it was. Latin's a better language than ours, and so why don't we say February? I don't, that accent, I don't know who that is. It's just that I could do that without going upward in the voice. Sorry. So we have to have February, and now because of writing, we think that that's actually the word. It should be Feverer. Some of us should start saying that. I'm not going to start because people would give me too much grief, but do it in private, and maybe it'll start to spread like so many private things seem to in our times. Or, for example, soldier. It's a soldier. Soldier. Say soldier enough, and that L's got to go, just like burst and bust. You know, L's tend to behave like R's. So why not just soldier? That is the way people were saying it for a long time. Then somebody decided, well, no, because the word used to have an L in it, and we can't go changing, can we? And so, next thing you know, you have soldier. So you have to stick your tongue in it. That's annoying. Life is hard enough. 
Another one, vittles is a word we associate with the unlettered. But all vittles is is what happens to a word like victuals if you say it a lot and dare to actually get comfortable with yourself. And then somebody comes along and says, vittles? Well, that's no good. People can't be saying that in great expectations. That's disgusting. It has to be victuals. And anybody who says vittles is Pip's father or something like that. So it has to be victuals because that's the way it was in Latin. And then you end up having two words. You have victuals, which is, I imagine, something some noble eats. It's really an obsolete word. And then vittles, which is Yosemite Sam's food. But why couldn't we just say vittles? Why do we have to go back to victuals? This is my favorite example of this. Carrot, celery, radish, asparagus. What the hell is asparagus? What is that word? And if you think about it, it seems kind of Latin. And maybe we accept this because asparagus, frankly, looks kind of like a genital. And so because it looks like a penis or something like that, then, of course, it's going to be called an asparagus because that sounds kind of penile or something. But no, it's a very strange word. Asparagus, that's Latin. And then when it was taken into English at first, you called it asparagus. And people started thinking of it as plural. So, oh, look at all these asparagus. And so they made up a singular. And so you would have an aspergy. So there you are. And if you only have one stalk of it, some people don't like asparagus. So you're only going to get them to eat one stalk. It was an aspergy. Here's your aspergy. And then you have your potatoes and your pork or something like that. Go a little further. And you're talking about sparage. You're going to have sparages. Usually you eat more than one. Or, you know, we're going to have some sparage tonight. Now, that is a perfectly legitimate word. I would like to call it sparage. Asparagus sounds so clinical. It's like there's a fluorescent light over it. It's sparage. That makes perfect sense. You ever notice how if you're in Germany, I'm assuming, of course, everybody's been to Germany, that for some reason their asparagus is often white. Well, you can think of it as white-ass sparage because it's counterintuitive to us. White-ass sparage. But no, no, whoever this sheer con James Mason person I keep doing is, he came along at a certain point and said, no, we have to call it asparagus because that was the original word and the past is better. And so gradually, starting in the 1700s, asparagus became the way that the proper person said it and no more sparage. Now, asparagus sounded so odd by then that many people thought that it was sparrowgrass which you know, makes a certain sense because maybe it looks like grass and asparagus. See, that, but that was out of desperation because asparagus didn't feel like an English word because it isn't. We should be eating asparagus. I think that's a great word. And now we're just stuck and we have to say asparagus. It's just, it's not proper. But that throwback business is where you can get words. It never ceases to fascinate me how these things happen. This is from The Boyfriend, which is an originally British musical in 1954. It came to the United States in 1954, which was a loving parody of musicals of the 20s, which even by then seemed antique. So these were throwback songs even in the 50s. And my favorite is one called It's Never Too Late to Fall in Love, which can be seen as the older person throwing back to his more, I don't know, potent times. And these are two very, very old-style 
British singers. Their names were Jeffrey Hibbert and Dillis Lay. Those could only be British people. For some reason, nobody came over to America with names like Jeffrey Hibbert and Dillis Lay. But they are worth hearing. This is never too late to fall in love. This just makes me smile. If it doesn't make you smile, I apologize, but I get to have this because I'm sick. I may be too old to run a mile. Run a mile? Yes, run a mile. But there's one thing I still do very well. I may be too old to climb a stile. Climb a stile? Yes, climb a stile. But there's one thing at which I still excel. Although my hair is turning grey. Yes, it's rather grey. I still believe it when I say. Well, what do you say? It's never too late to have a thing. For autumn is just as nice as spring. And it's never too late to fall. In love. It's never too late to wink an eye. I do it until the day I die, and it's never too late to fall in love. If they say I'm too old for you, then I shall answer why, sir. One never drinks the wine that's new, the old wine tastes much nicer. Oh, a gentleman never feels too weak to pet a pink arm or pinch a cheek. And it's never too late to fall in love. Says who? Says me. Says you. And finally, where do words come from? You get new chunks that you don't even know are chunks because writing gives you a clue as to where they came from. One of those is, you're taking me for granted. You took it for granted. What does that really mean in terms of the chunks? Now, you know that it's written as, you take me for granted. Okay. You take me for granted. Granted what? You learn this when you're writing, but I remember hearing this used by a peculiar friend of mine back when I was about nine. You're taking me for granted. And if I spelled it in my mind, it was F. E-R-G-R-A-N-N-I-T. You're taking me for granted. So what, what is a for granted? And I said, what, what does that mean? And he wasn't the most metalinguistic person, so he couldn't quite explain. But I gradually figured out that he meant that I was trying to exploit him, which I was. But it's one of those expressions. When you say, you're taking me for granted, if you can get away from the writing, are you really saying, you're taking me for given without expectation of recompense that word grant no not really it's just for granted for granted for granted for granted is a new word that means exactly what it means or this is something that i got two people asking me about last week and i get this all the time i've mentioned it on the show before but i'll mention it again because one good turn deserves another if that's what that expression means and so i could have gone there i should have gone there i would have gone there Well, in real English, as in how you think of it when you're a kid until you learn how to write, it's of. I could have gone. I would have gone. Or it's just a. It's this little a word that has this very grammatical meaning. You know where to use it, but coulda, shoulda, woulda. And you have this a that puts these things in the past when they're usually when they're hypothetical. And if you want to call it of and a uh, as the shortened form, you could think, well, how does that mean what of means? But then again, think of the weird ways that you use of in other places. So, boy, I've had a real hell of a day. Of what? I've had a hell. You wouldn't say like a day's hell, would you? And so a hell of a day. 
It's just kind of in there. Or a very elegant friend of mine once said when I was stuck somewhere I didn't want to be and I was wondering how I was going to use my time because it was a situation where dating would have been inappropriate. And he said, well, you go down to Melvin's of an afternoon. And I'd never heard that expression before, but he meant, you know, you wind your way down to Melvin's when you feel like it on the occasional afternoon. Go down to Melvin's of an afternoon. Well, what's the of? That is no more opaque than I could have done it. And this gives me an excuse for one more clip, which is from the musical Working. We're in the late 70s. It's about working people. And this is Mickey Grant's song. Various people wrote songs for this called If I Could Have Been. And it's a wonderful piece. It's sung by the late, great Lynn Thigpen. And she varies between have and of and uh. But you get the point. She's using a new piece of grammar, uh. If I could have been what I could have been, I could have been something. If what I could be had been left to be, I would have been something. Strength, center of power at ten bucks an hour. I could have done, I could have done, I could have done big. To do what I wanted to, I would have done big things. That is some places where words come from. I've given you some before, I've given you some more. We may come back here. Words come from all sorts of places. And I'll tell you, there are new words in my mind or words that have been eliminated. I'm going to admit something to you only now. I do not spontaneously distinguish in my speech between bought and brought. I was bopped on the back of the head about this when I was little, and so I learned to fake it. But to me, I bought the chair across the room sounds perfectly fine. To say I brought a new umbrella at the store sounds great. Now, I don't do this in public, but I must admit that if you woke me up out of a sound sleep and tested me on these things, frankly, even then I would know to be careful. But in my mind, they are the same, and I really wish that there was just bought, brought, long gone. They're, they're too much alike, and I have too much else to do. And also, for all intentional purposes, it, that's what I thought it was until I graduated from college, and somebody made fun of me while they were teaching me how to make broiled chicken. I thought it was for all intentional purposes. Should be. Now I know that it's for all intents and purposes, but I don't know what that means. It should be all intentional purposes. That's just me. By the way, I make mistakes just like everybody else, and I knew I was making this one as soon as I said it, but I didn't think anybody would care. William Conrad played Cannon on TV. It wasn't that William Cannon played Ironside. That was stupid. William Conrad played Cannon. Ironsides was Raymond Burr. So I made that mistake. It was egregious. And there is egg all over my face and honey in my throat to make it so that when I give you another show, I will sound like a human being. But in any case, 
You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe. Or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. The show was edited, as always, by Mike Wolo, especially patiently this week because we're doing it under the gun. And I am John McWhorter. And you know what? Because I get this because I'm sick. We're going to have the reprise of It's Never Too Late to Fall in Love as our outro music. And it's going to start here. They go off and then they come back on and they sing another verse. And to me, it's even funnier. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to go to bed. And I will see you in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to sound like a valid human being. Thank you for your toleration. It's never too late to blow a kiss, especially at a time like this. And it's never too late to fall in love. Vote you, vote you, vote you! It's never too late for fun and larks. A jolly old fame has lots of sparks. And it's never too late to fall in love. Oh, vote you, vote you, vote you! The modern buildings that you see are often most alarming. But I am sure that you'll agree A ruin can be charmed <gasps> It's never too late to be a bow Experience counts a lot, you know And it's never too late to fall in Never too late to fall in Never too late to fall in love